Hello and welcome to Just Stories. We share inspiring stories of real people leading lives impacted by social justice, advocacy, and service. Today is May 1st and marks the beginning of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. In honor of that, we welcome Jiyoon Song, a Korean American who is doing important work in the Asian American community of Chicago. We'd also like to take this opportunity to pay tribute to the legacy of the late Bernie Wong. Bernie was a trailblazer in Chicago for Asian immigrants who would call Chicago home. She founded the Chinese American Service League that provides a wide range of social services to Asian Americans and now employs over 500 people. Bernie will be missed by many. Now, join us in conversation with Ji Yoon Song and hear how she's used her experiences to make a difference in the lives of others. And remember, it's all about the story, hers and yours. Just stories. Hey, Jean, what's happening in your world today? My world? Yeah, uh, yeah so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's going well. So um, I just have a little bit of a story about getting the vaccine. Right. Okay. So I have a couple of teenagers and, uh, you know, that, uh, they just recently opened up teenagers yeah. being able to get Six, vaccinated. 16 and up, right? Yeah, for sure. So that happened on Monday. So on Sunday, I already had an appointment for my 17 year old son who actually works in a restaurant, a fast food restaurant. So he mm. is considered one of the people who could actually get in, even though he was, you know, a teenager. Right. And um, so I got him the appointment and everything like that. And we drove out to Batavia, which was about 45 minutes That's on a, a Sunday morning. Yeah. On a Sunday morning. And <laughs> he's a teenager who usually doesn't wake up until about, oh, 1 p.m. And so here I am driving him out at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. We get out there. He's kind of excited. So we get there and we meet the National Guard and they see his printed ticket and everything like that and then the the person nice person says so how old are you and he says he said 17 and she said oh well today we're giving out Moderna and you have to be 18 oh no yes so a warning oh to all parents oh <laughs> please goodness. be aware of which vaccine you are sending your 16 or 17 year old son or daughter too because they might be turned away if it is moderna you could only get pfizer That's... so pfizer is for 16 and 17 years and that was a a hard fought lesson and and i told him i said you know when we went to this um when i signed him up for the appointment they disclosed like we we do not know which vaccine will be distributed on that day mm, just hold your appointment it will not be johnson and johnson i'm so mm. okay fine whichever one is fine <laughs> wow. It would have been nice for them to have, you know, put some disclaimer there or, or inform you of that beforehand. <laughs> if, you know, you know, I'm sure the that Moderna they did. vaccine is for 18 and up. Um, but yeah. for all of our listeners, now, you know, at least, yeah, I had not heard yeah. that before, though. I had not heard that. My daughter, Julia, who is 18, just got hers. I'm not sure what it was, but um, we're grateful that four out of the five of us are now vaccinated. And right. uh, as you can tell at the time of this recording, it's all about who's getting vaccinated. And mm -hmm. um, so hopefully the all ages will be before before too long. 
But, I uh, did find him another vaccine for this coming Sunday, so oh, I don't feel so bad. Great. It was a real race, That'd but good you know. But let's let's move on. Let's talk about uh, who we have here today. We were we're going to be speaking with June Song. Uh, Jean, why don't you introduce her and let us know who she is and what she's about? Yeah. So um, June Song is um, a friend of a friend of mine, and she is a Korean American who is a 1.5 generation immigrant. And she moved to Chicago um, in fourth grade from South Korea. And she grew up in the northern suburbs of um, Chicago until college. And then she attended Northwestern University where she studied Asian American studies and it changed her life. Mm -hmm. She got her master's in urban planning at UIC. And throughout these times, she worked at various um, Asian American organizations like National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, Can Win, and now she's at the HANA Center. So um, let's welcome her. Hi, Gion. How are you today? Hi. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jean. Yeah. So um, I just I want to um, also explain the 1.5 because we had a brief conversation before this recording about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I did um, move here when I was in fourth grade around when I was nine or 10 years old. Um, and, you know, 1.5 really stands for the fact that I hold close to my Korean culture and language. My parents didn't speak English very much. So that's, I think, a big reason why I was able to hold on to my Korean language. And I also hold on to the American, you know, culture, just having lived here now at this time longer than in Korea. So that's what it is. And I do now work as an organizer at HANA Center. And a little bit info about HANA Center, you know, HANA in Korean means one. So it's really the mission and vision behind it is that we are all one together and it is a mission where we want to strive for racial and economic justice for everyone um like no one left behind so that's the vision behind the name and you know having been a very immigrant centered organization um we are all about immigrant justice racial justice and economic justice and we do serve um, Korean American, Asian Americans, and also Latinx um, communities. And one of the main things that we're always pushing for is um, citizenship for our undocumented folks. So a large pool of our community consists of undocumented people. And I'll talk more about this later as we progress, but being undocumented means so many lack of access to things. So citizenship means health care. It means ability to get fair wage or even get a job, ability to have a safe you know, family and take provide and thrive. Um, so citizenship really is really important for us. Um, and right now we're in the process of pushing for citizenship for all. In the first 100 days of Biden's um, admin, we're day 80 something into it. And we've been out there um, in DC, in Georgia, everywhere, you know, in US, calling them, emailing them. And, you know, right now we're kind of famous for protesting right outside of Kamala Harris's um, DC home. Um, so we've been on the news for a little bit for that, but yeah. Thank you for telling us and sharing that with us. Um... 
And we'll be talking a lot more about the impact of HANA Center in the Chicagoland area with the AAPI uh, community. But if you wouldn't mind, I wonder if you can take us back a few years um, because something tells me that perhaps your uh, childhood may have played a role in what you're doing now. And I, I just can, can't imagine a as a 10 year old coming to the States you know, or, or coming to a different country and, and planting myself there. But I wonder if there's anything that comes to mind as, as far as stories from when you were a little girl and that experience of changing cultures and moving across the world or, or around the globe um, and anything that might have been impactful in your life that perhaps led towards oh, yeah. what you're doing now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have so many stories. Um, so I moved in fourth grade and I didn't speak any English. So as far as my conversation was, you know, hi, how are you? And that was it. You know, their response would not register to me. So I remember the first day of school in fourth grade and all these kids were just staring at me and I felt so dumb because I, I could see that they wanted to be friends with me, but I just could not converse with them. And this was the first time I'd ever felt that because I was a very outgoing, you know, I had a lot of friends in Korea and I thought I was always this confident person and something changed. Um, when I went there, didn't know how to speak English. I attended ESL for two or three years. So I was not part of the regular classes. So I couldn't really be friends with them. Um, and the only class that I was allowed to attend was math classes. Um, and I love telling this story because I think it's just hilarious where, you know, in Korea, we math is just such a, a big part. Um, so it was my math class and our first quiz. And I was like ready to ace it, right. And I just see all these kids taking out their calculators and I'm like, that's cheating. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> so I kept on staring at the teacher thinking that she's going to say something, right? Thinking that she's going to apprehend these kids, but nothing happened. And the whole time I'm just staring at the teacher and taking my quiz, like what is going on? And I think that's a big culture, you know, just a specific example of culture shock for me where it was the norm. It was norm for kids to use calculators here and I thought I was like it was cheating back then so you know that's one story there was a lot of adjustment cried and, and how a lot. did you how did you do on that quiz June I aced that quiz all right <laughs> without a calculator yes without you a calculator <laughs> um yeah but I mean I I liked math but you know I realized like it's not I liked just being good at it I think um, so I think I realized it was different. So education, you know, stands are also different here. And the way that education is taught is also very different in Korea yeah. and here. So let's talk a little bit about the education that's offered here in America versus um, back home. Um, we know right now that the TEACH bill is on the floor, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what TEACH is, what the acronym stands for. But you were speaking earlier in our our pre-call about how this is a really essential for our young people right now. Um, as, and if we are to improve our education system here and opportunities here in America, this would be one way. So tell us a little bit about TEACH. Yeah, so TEACH stands for Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History um, Bill. Um, so it is in the process of passing in Illinois. So it is an Illinois bill 
that would mandate an Asian American history unit be taught in within the history curriculum. Um, so we're super excited about this. Um, for those of us who, you all who are curious about the bill number, it's HB 376 and then Senate Bill 648. Um, so we have just passed out of the set, um, House Committee and we are probably gonna be looking at a House floor vote um, in the House. So we're super close. I think we need wow. 60 votes to pass and we have 57 or 58 and I have no doubt that it's gonna you know knock on wood pass but this means so many things to me and a lot of the students that I work with you know Jean you mentioned how Asian American studies at college really changed my life and mm -hmm. I say that I would not be doing what I do right now without Asian American studies I was gonna be a dentist I was a, on a pre-dental track oh um, really yeah, which is a totally different, I think, feel than organizing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because I had not, first of all, known that the job organizer existed in high school. Mm -hmm. um, I had not seen Asian American organizers or activists, you know, being represented in media or history. So the idea has never been planted, you know, in my head. And that all changed when I went to college sophomore year my first class Asian American studies intro and I was just it, it felt like a wave of just like what in the world is this swept over me and I couldn't you know wait to get more of it um so I know firsthand how important that was for me and I always say Asian American studies the people in that space was like you know my healing space in college I did everything with the people with the with the teachers, with the professors. Um, and it means the same thing to the students, high school students, especially who I work with, who either have been fortunate enough to take an Asian American studies class, specifically at Niles North or West. Um, I think Niles North or West is, you know, like it's a very special class um, and it's not offered anywhere that I know of in Illinois in high school. So those students know firsthand that like they want to see every other school have what they experienced. Um, one student just shared that after that class, she wanted to become an Asian American studies teacher and professor wow. with tears in her eyes. Um, and, you know, Mr. Chan was also crying at this. Um, mm -hmm. So, and she was talking about how a fire lit, you know, her passion and fire lit when she took that class, mm -hmm. learning about her, Filipino or, um, communities as the first Asian Americans to ever come to US before the pilgrims um, in 1500s of something. Um, so a lot of that, you know, means a lot to us. To, it's, I think, more than representation. Um, it's something more, yeah. I yeah. imagine it might speak to the core of your identity to discover a lot of the things you didn't know about your the heritage here, you know, mm -hmm. the Asian Americans and the community here. So uh, just like um, your identity is built through your time in Korea and your early stages here, there's, I'm guessing another formative time. Am I right about that in your, your own identity development? Oh yeah. Um, Asian American history, I think is more, it's more than just learning about our history. Like there's such innate, innate, um, activism and organizing in the history of our community. So 
we had to constantly fight for what we need in this country, right? So I think learning about that community building, community organizing throughout history, I think kind of came hand in hand with me, like learning about the history and wanting to be an organizer, I think just flowed naturally that I didn't even realize. <laughs> Interesting. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Mr. Chan, who is Albert Chan, who teaches the Asian American history uh, class, both at Niles North and West in Skokie. Um, he, along with um, a few of his colleagues, actually put together the curriculum. I think it's a, he's the main person who, who mm -hmm. uh, wrote the curriculum. And that class has been just flourishing, you know, semester after semester, and it's a semester long class. And you're talking about the teach bill, which is just asking all high school curriculums just to teach a unit. And so in their social studies curriculum, so a unit could be like two weeks to four weeks, not necessarily a whole semester, but whatever sort of exposure a high school student gets um, could be valuable or would be valuable as you demonstrated from that, that young girl who tearfully mm -hmm. said that she knows what she wants to study in her life. Um, on the flip side of that, have you come across any stories from youth who uh, shared some painful memories or experiences that were um, brought up by, yeah. um, by this? Yes, a lot. Um, I have stories that are specific to Asian American history and what this would mean to students and also in light of what's been happening with COVID and how students yeah. are experiencing that in their schools. Um, so we have a few students who are specifically Japanese American. And, you know, I think Japanese internment camp is one of the most horrific, you know, history enacted upon our Asian American community in US. And while during her history class, um, while they were being taught this history, a few of her classmates were telling her, oh, but they were rightfully incarcerated because of X, Y, Z and how she was crying when she was telling me this and how important this bill is to her. Um, and I also, you know, we, this past couple weeks working with youth, I've just experienced just extensive amounts of what these youth go through really in their school. And especially after the Atlanta shooting um, a few weeks ago, um, our youth have shared how, one, a lot of the schools have not even said a word after that night. Um, like no email, none of, the teach none of the teachers mentioned anything and how hurtful that was. Or if they did, um, they were not equipped to handle the discussion. So they would just open it up, you know, for students to discuss. And one student in particular shared how the first person who shared was this guy in her class. And it was about, you know, well, so what counts as a racial, you know, hate crime? Like, let's define that. So it was the, this very offensive and re-traumatizing conversation that, you know, started that their class conversation. And she was, she came to me after crying that session, mm -hmm. how that was so painful. Mm -hmm. um, she was so hurt by the teacher who didn't stop that conversation from happening and also her classmates. So we, we see this teach as, you know, one part of an important bill um, and also a beginning of something important, like teaching our history to all Illinois students is really important for this, for this reason. Sure. Sure. 
Well, we certainly are behind you and, and, and hope to see a passing bill on uh, the coming days. And so um, we'll even get into our podcast notes, the, the numbers of the bills that you mentioned. So we can get those down if people want to write their legislators. So, um, but you know, it has been a time of growing awareness um, of the discrimination, of the racism, and even of the violence um, of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, and I wonder, uh, you have talked a little bit about the HANA Center and you're, you're well connected with the Asian American community here in Chicago and the suburbs. And what are some of the things you've been seeing and hearing from your community with regard to, to this? You mentioned Atlanta, and, um, but we're, we're, we're all discovering that um, what you already knew and know that this goes beyond Atlanta and well before Atlanta. Um, and so perhaps you can share a little bit about um, your experiences uh, or experiences that, of those in your community? Yeah, um, so having working at HANA Center where we have services for our community and we do organize, we've been getting lots of calls from community members who either experience the violence firsthand or know somebody who's experienced violence and looking for resources. Um, so one story that you know really shocked me was a community member who worked as the Amazon delivery driver um, and he was just making his normal runs in the suburb of Chicago. And when he noticed he was driving slowly because he has to deliver packages, he noticed this one man who was standing in front of his porch, just yelling stuff at the, you know, at our community member. And it was inaudible. So he just was like not ignoring that and just going about his business. Um, but when he stopped his car to deliver packages, he all of a sudden noticed this man walking towards him and, you know, he was attacked. Um, he was attacked just verbally, physically, um, and like his car was also like damaged because this man was kicking the truck, um, etc. Wow. So after this incident, um, our committee member reported this to Amazon saying, First of all, I didn't damage the car. Um, and like this happened to me, what are you gonna, how are you gonna help me recover from this incident? Mm -hmm. And I was sad to find out that he was fired. So there was no accountability. There was no help from Amazon. Just, we're just gonna let you go um, because we mm -hmm. don't wanna deal with it. So after he experienced this, he called us asking for legal services, legal help. Um, but, you know, this is not a isolated incident. Um, we've heard similar situations like this all throughout the year where our community members being attacked right outside of Asian grocery store, um, our community members being yelled at from workplaces, just out in public. So, you know, this has been going on way before COVID, but especially escalated, you know, throughout COVID and before Atlanta shooting, for sure. Um, you work with the uh, National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And so let's just, you know, just gravitate a little bit more towards um, any uh, women related issues that you might be able to highlight for us. Um, mm. Do you have any stories to talk about as far as the women uh, in in the Asian communities that you um, serve or have met? Yeah, 
Yeah, of course. So um, just for context, um, the first organization, NOPOF, is an Asian American reproductive justice organization. And the second organization, CANWIN, is an Asian American gender-based violence organization. So those two were pretty similar in that it was at the intersection of gender and race. Um, mm -hmm. And thank you. I yeah. want to say, yeah, I want to say that these type of organizations are especially important because these intersectional areas cause very unique problems for women of color um, mm -hmm. and Asian American women. So, you know, for example, um, at Canwin, we um, provided services to a lot of women who were um, victims and survivors of gender-based violence. And they were having to not only think about their safety, but also what it means to keep their status. Um, so oftentimes they could be undocumented, which means a whole lot of different you know, issues outside of just safety. Um, but other times their status also was dependent on their abuser. So their visa or their citizenship was dependent on their abuser. And as, you know, seeking divorce or safety apart from that abuser meant losing their status to stay in the US. Um, so, you know, these survivors literally have to choose, do I get deported or do I choose safety? Do I see my children um, for regularly or do I stay safe and protect my physical body? Um, so these are very specific intersectional issues that are, you know, have been going on since before Atlanta shooting. Um, and I want to really emphasize that Asian women were sexualized, were prone to violence, were exploited, et cetera, before Atlanta shooting. Um, Atlanta shooting was just a very horrific example of all of that mm -hmm. coming out um, into a crazy violence. Um, so yeah, I think that week when the Atlanta shooting happened, I think there was just outpour of pain and emotions from a lot of women I remember that whole week, I was very dysfunctional. Um, I would just join into Zoom meetings and just start crying for no reason. And I couldn't explain like why, mm -hmm. um, but I was just crying and I just had to sit there and cry. Um, so I think a lot of, we carry a lot of, and this isn't just years, this is generations, decades, centuries of trauma and violence um, <clears throat> like my mom went through and my grandma went through. You know, so, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's definitely specific when we're talking about Asian American or Asian women. And so you mentioned safety. And so how do we get safety into these communities when it's so delicate? Um, uh, like you said, it's so individualistic and there's a lot at stake. Mm -hmm. um, so what would you suggest or what have you been talking about or promoting in your, um, in your uh, communication with your community members? And, and maybe like what doesn't work? What, you know, mm -hmm. lots, safety means a lot of things for doc, a lot of people. So maybe what, what would work and what is not working? Yeah, um, this is a very, I think, hard question, especially for Asian American community. Um, I think, and we have witnessed this, right? You know, as COVID was 
surging violence against Asian were surging. And right after Atlanta, um, there were different responses in our community as to what should be done. So there were community members saying, we need more policing. And there were community members saying, no, that is not the answer and that does not keep us safe. So we have to understand, I think, how this plays into the diversity of our community. So a lot of our first generation immigrant communities who have came to US likely fleeing a war or communism or you know things that are very traumatic and have been military violence um, and policing violence, you know, their response to a lot of a lot of the hate that we're seeing is just keep quiet and the way will it will pass us. Like don't cause another scene, keep quiet and just respect the police and what they're doing. So we're hearing that from a lot of the seniors that we're working with. Mm-hmm. And the responses are different when it comes to second generation or youth that we're working with because they have a more, um, I guess, nuanced racial understanding and dynamics in the US having been grown up here. Um, so there's very intergenerational conflict and you know, conflict within our community. And those are, re- we need to address both. Um, when we talk about safety, yeah. Jiyoon, I've I've heard it um, said that the Asian American um, minority is the ideal minority because I Asian Americans don't raise a fuss. They're smart, they're bright, and um, they don't make waves. And that's a little bit of what you described in the the uh, first generation and the older. Um, Asian generation and and a little bit of what I've experienced, you know, in the limited uh, interactions that I've had. Um, something tells me you're not of that particular generation, and maybe um, the 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 new Asian American generation will be a little bit less ideal and <laughs> and a little bit more um, raising awareness and a little bit more um, raising your voice um, so that we can all learn and know that uh, things have not been okay. Uh, mm-hmm. for Asians and Asian Americans in this country. And things, things need to move towards a place where, where they're much better. Um, yeah. That's why we call it a myth, um, not a real a thing. Mm-hmm. So model minority myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as HANA Center and as an organizer at HANA Center, we do have to approach this with, I think, some type of empathy um, and understanding. So instead of just condemning our seniors um, for believing in this, I think there's some space for understanding, oh, there's a reason why they hold on to this myth because, you know, they have trauma and safety and survival, which means different than our youth. Um, So yeah, you bring up a good point that, so our work is really difficult when it comes to safety. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're still always learning, but as HANA Center, I can say that we don't think police keeps us safe. Um, More policing is not an answer. We've seen before COVID that our community members have been hurt and attacked and prone to violence by police. Um, So we think of ICE detentions and ICE agents under the same policing institution. And when you work with undocumented immigrants, police, are, you know, an entity of fear. You know, they induce immense fear because police lead to ICE. Um, If you're arrested for speeding, you know, any traffic, blah, 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 
likely they will connect to ICE. So we have been working on different bills and campaigns to prevent that from ha that connection from happening, like from the police to ICE agents. Um, Can you just so for our listeners tell us what ICE stands for, please? Yeah, it's actually what is I'm blanking Immigr on it. Immigration for and ICE. Yeah, we customs, take it for granted. Immigration, immigration and customs. And customs enforce enforcement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they are in charge of policing immigrants, basically. And um, you know, we've seen ICE raids in various workplaces where they know they will have a lot of undocumented immigrants, mm -hmm. restaurants, nail salons, um, spas, like we've seen in Atlanta shooting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jean, you've you've told us a lot. Um, I wonder if there is any uh, other if there are any other stories that you'd like to our listeners to hear before before we wrap up tonight. Yeah, um, I want to share the story just to provide how complex you know this conversation is for as gendered lens, racial, and policing when we're thinking about all of this. Mm. So this is years before. Um, COVID, I was traveling on the bus. Um, and as an Asian woman traveling, frequently using public transportation, I was always aware of my surroundings. So even to this day, I knew exactly where everyone was seated and where everyone was. Um, you just have a mental map of where everyone is just as a safety precaution um, as a woman. And I noticed I was sitting on the back of the bus and there were a few men and I believe I was the only women identifying person and there was one man sitting at the very front next to the bus driver um, and I was just minding my business on my phone listening to music when I notice this man at the very front of the bus starts walking towards me very fast and this like memory is like a slow-mo for me where I see this man walking fast towards me and I'm like what do I do? What do I do? Like in my head, I'm like, what is happening? Right. And even though it was a few seconds, I'm like checking for the people who are sitting in between us to see if they notice him walking towards me. Um, and they don't even look at me. They don't acknowledge or no eye contact, nothing. So then I feel very unsafe. Right. Because now I know, oh, I can't count on these people. Because they're not either they are not recognizing what's happening or they're choosing to ignore what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so this man comes near towards me and is, you know, really close up in my face and tries to take my phone away and starts screaming at me very loudly. Um, but I can't really recall what he's saying or what he's yelling. But he so I don't let go of my phone. So that's why he keeps pulling on my phone in my hand while yelling at me. And I you know, it must have been only maybe a few seconds to 10 seconds where this happens, but it feels like an eternity for me, right? Mm. Um, and I, during this entire time, I keep looking at the people near, near me to say, why aren't you stopping this? Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, he's clear, like I'm clearly very small compared to this man. So I cannot put up a fight. Why aren't you doing anything? And, you know, ultimately it comes down to the bus driver stopping the bus and yelling at this man to sit back down. And it feels like there's some kind of relationship because this man is very compliant to the bus driver and just goes back to sit down. And I'm just left there 
trying to process what just happened, while also more angry at the people who didn't stop or intervene. Um, so of course I get out of the bus next stop and start crying and I just get an Uber back home because I'm like, I just can't with today, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but then as I'm reflecting more on that situation, a few things just come to mind. One is um, the man who attacked me seems to have some kind of mental condition. Um, you know, I, I kind of noticed that when I first got on the bus. So, you know, one thing that raised the flag is like, we don't need more police. We actually need more mental institutions and mental health services for a lot of people. Um, and police cannot provide that for all of us. And the second thing is, you know, what does intervention look like? You know, why didn't all, there must have been five or six people who were there. Why didn't they even try to intervene, distract, diffuse the, the situation? Um, were they also scared? You know, you know, like all those questions come to mind. And what does creating a community where we're all ready to intervene when we see something like that happen? You know, it's going to take lots of training. It's going to take a lot of practicing. Um, because I can tell you as a woman, I'd be scared to intervene too when it's a violent situation. So we also have to learn about what does our own protection mean during that time, during the intervention. <clears throat> um, and also, I want to say, like, I was the only woman on that bus. So he had to, he, the man who attacked me came all the way across the bus um, with ignoring all the people in between us, but chose to came, come to me to ask for my phone, I guess. So, you know, it's a very complicated situation when we talk about policing and safety. Um, but I think we know that police is not the answer. Yeah. You bring up a good point, feeling like a target, like you felt like you were specifically targeted, but also um, you highlight the, the potential that communal care could have on any type of situation, how to diffuse it, how to step in. And you're right, I think it does take a lot of training and awareness um, mm -hmm. and compassion. Um, and you do have to uh, overcome a lot of personal fears. Um, mm -hmm. But I think in order to keep a community alive and thriving and confident and safe, uh, sometimes stepping in will, will help. And at this point in time, in this conversation right here, I don't think that we're quite there yet, but you do see some potential. Mm. Yeah. And, and I do see that connected towards um, society growing in respect for one another, um, mm -hmm. uh, having a sense of um, humanity, uh, wherein, you know, we look upon one another as brothers and sisters of, of humanity, um, where um, not only are we not discriminating, and we're not um, showing racism, uh, but we're actually being proactive in supporting, caring for, and looking out for one another, um, mm -hmm. where um, when something like that would happen, people would step in. Um, and perhaps that's basic empathy, you know, and mm -hmm. um, the need for greater empathy um, among, uh, among society. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you do, you, I'm, I'm glad you brought that story up because it, it does point towards a number of different things. Um, and I, I guess I'm a big picture guy, but I, 
you know, um, we're, we're still waiting for Kumbaya for the mm -hmm. human race, um, where we come together, but it, it's, it's not something that comes without a lot of labor and work from people like you, mm -hmm. um, who yeah. raise issues and, and help us all to be aware that there is the need and, and how we can come together more in that way. And supporting the youth as well, because mm. all the youth that you come uh, to, to meet and the energy that they bring and their want to learn and to, to change and yet still respect, like you said, the older generations. Um, do you see good things happening with this generation, this young generation? You, you, oh, you yeah. sort of that I always say um, the best part of my job is working with youth. Um, and I'm not much older than high schoolers, <laughs> I'm just by a few years, but um, I am learning from them constantly. And um, I wanna break this mentality that like they're our future, which is true, but they're also our present. Like they're doing mm -hmm. a lot of organizing work um, and a lot of great things at the present right now. Um, so. I'm really excited for this bill and just so much that they're going to do beyond this bill. Um, you know, they're going to be Asian American studies professors and they're going to be the ones voicing and raising these issues wherever they are, which is amazing. They are remarkable. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I want to give a special shout out to Albert Chan, who's a friend of mine at work who introduced us to bring you in here tonight. So I really mm -hmm. want to thank you, Albert. Um, and thank you, Dion, for um, being here and all the good work that you do with your communities and your young people and your older generations as well. Um, thanks so much. It was a really great talk. I'm so thank glad we connected. Both. Yeah, thank you both. It was fun. Wonderful meeting you. Keep up mm -hmm. the good work. And that wraps up this episode of Just Stories. We hope you've enjoyed this time and you'll join us again. Just Stories is a partnership with Our Savior's Lutheran Church, an ELCA member church, where all are welcome and we join in God's reconciling work, which prioritizes disenfranchised, vulnerable, and displaced people in our communities and the world. Your hosts are people of Christian faith, and we recognize that God works through many vehicles, including those of differing faith or of no faith. Our guests may or may not be members of Our Savior's Lutheran Church. If you enjoyed what you heard, tell a friend, and please subscribe. Tune in next time for more of Just Stories. <laughs>